Well, welcome again. If you want to pull out your Bible and turn to John chapter 2. A few family things to uh, get out of the way before we jump into the scripture. You know, summer is here officially. Uh, Kids are out of school. You teachers, administrators, you made it to the finish line. Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, Parents, you don't have to wake up early tomorrow to to make lunches, uh, which is a great thing. Uh, So uh, summer is here and summer has this sense of uh, breathing in, uh, slowing down a little bit, uh, even if nothing changed from May to June for you because it's 8 to 5 no matter what the month is. Uh, still, summer kind of brings this fresh wind. And, uh, and it, it's a, a, a season of uh, I'm going to be taking it easy, which is great, and it definitely is. But if you remember back to when you were a kid, summer could also be a time of uh, growth. I remember the summer between my eighth grade year and my freshman year of high school, I grew about six inches, which is great because look at me, I'm not a giant now. So can you imagine going to uh, high school being six inches shorter than I am right now? And so uh, if you're a teacher, you know what that's like. You say goodbye to a kid in May and you see him in the halls in September and they're, they're totally a different person. And I'm wondering what it would be like here if this summer was a season of a spiritual growth spurt for all of us. Think about what a better church we would be if all of us grew up six inches uh, this summer and we changed from May uh, to September. And so that can happen a lot of different ways. Uh, the, the first way it can happen is by making sure that there are some people around you this summer who will bring that out of you, that will encourage you. Remember what the proverb says, iron sharpens iron. I've heard it said that we learn in rows, but you grow in a circle. Uh, so do you have a circle around you? Uh, do you have some friends? Uh, do you have some brothers and sisters in the faith who can uh, sharpen you, who can encourage you, who can set a standard for you that would bring out the best in you, There are lots of ways for you to get that circle this summer. We have summer connect groups. We've been talking about them. Uh, and, uh, and so if you go online, bayoucityfellowship.com backslash connect or community, uh, you'll see a list of opportunities for you. There are all kinds of groups. In fact, I heard uh, about one this morning at our Cypress campus that is a kids eat free summer connect group. Uh, these parents have a list of restaurants in the Cypress area where kids eat free on that particular day. And they're just all going to show up at the restaurant and enjoy that together. We got everything from that uh, to Bible studies, uh, lots of stuff in between. But the point is, is that you would have a circle of brothers and sisters bringing out the best in you in Jesus' name. We've got some specific ways for you ladies uh, this summer. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we have Gather, uh, which is an amazing gathering that our women do a couple of times a year. It really is out of the book of Acts. Uh, They eat together. I'm saying they because obviously I won't be there. Um, uh, They break bread uh, together. They eat a meal together and then they worship. Uh, They have a time of teaching and they pray. Those are the four things right out of the book of Acts. And so if you're a lady uh, on the back of your listening guide, you can find more details about that, ladies. You also have Rise coming up. It's all three of our Bayou City churches coming together. Uh, The ladies of the the church coming together, again, to pray, uh, to sit under the teaching of the word and worship together. And then some Bible studies start in the middle of July uh, going through 1 John. So lots of ways for you ladies specifically to connect. Uh, Guys, I don't know where... Out of luck, pray. No, I'm just kidding. Lots of opportunities for the men too. But again, BayouCityFellowship.com backslash community. You'll find a list of those things. Also, you can check out all that stuff on the app. Uh, we I mentioned last week 
Uh, that we're hosting our neighborhood uh, in a couple of weeks with Bayou City Night. Uh, we're going out to the neighbors uh, on this side of Britmore and inviting them in. We're partnering with Cornerstone Ministries, which you heard about a few weeks ago, uh, that is doing weekly ministry in the Spring Branch area on this side of us. And so we're going to have a great time. There's a chemistry show that connects science to faith. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited about it. I'm an adult, but I'm going to make sure my kids are there because I want to know more about things and I want to see explosions. So uh, anyway... So we want you to come, and we need more volunteers to help us host the neighborhood. Uh, so, uh, again, you can find out information about that in the back of your listening guide or on the app. So that's a little family business that we wanted you to know about. Now let's get into the business of opening the scripture together. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Verse 23, and while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. My sophomore year of college, I had a computer information science class. Essentially, it was a whole semester of learning how to do PowerPoint. Now, middle schoolers spend a few days learning how to do PowerPoint. But back in the early 2000s, we need an entire semester to learn how to do it. Also, Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel, something I still don't know how to do. And the teacher was a pretty interesting guy. It was an auditorium-style classroom. He was at the bottom. We kind of sat in chairs like this. And the main idea was he had his computer in front of him uh, and, uh, and we could see what he was doing on his computer in the giant screen behind him. And so one morning, it was an 8 o'clock class. We come in. We're kind of milling around, saying hello to one another. We had bedhead. It's hard for you to imagine that I had bedhead, uh, but I did at that time. And, uh, and, and he is frustrated. The reason we know he is frustrated is because he is talking to his computer. When you are talking to inanimate objects, it's rarely a happy conversation. And so he's frustrated and then he gets a little bit louder and louder and louder it peaked when he just shoved everything off of the desk uh, that his uh, computer was on and this was a big computer this is not an apple ipad this is early 2000 style computer he takes his mouse and he throws it down on the desk makes this huge commotion we are just staring at him and then he stares back at us and says get out of here class is canceled and i was like this is great i don't even like this class anyway (laughs) One day, my middle school son will teach me how to do PowerPoint. I don't really need this. I bet if we were spectators in first century Jerusalem in the temple, the day that Jesus started turning over these tables and striking all these animals, we would have done the same thing to him that I did to my computer information science teacher at 8 a.m. Just stare. What is he doing? Is this guy crazy? 
this is totally improper. Uh, thankfully, John doesn't just record what happened that day. He tells us why these things happened. Verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember from last week, we left Jesus in Capernaum. That is verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. So last week, we saw that Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Then he traveled a few miles to Capernaum. I brought a a map. Uh, Thank God for Google Maps. It helps us understand the Bible better. Capernaum is up at the top in northern Israel. And it says that Jesus only stayed in Capernaum for a few days and then he travels down to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Now, imagine Jesus traveling. It's a 36 hour journey today. Probably would have been the same amount of hours back then, only it would have been broken up by a couple of nights. But it's more than just Jesus and his 12 disciples. Imagine whole villages, whole towns on this giant caravan from northern Israel down to Jerusalem in the south. Because if you are an able-bodied, well person. You wanted to celebrate the high holidays in Jerusalem and specifically in the temple, especially Passover, which they lifted up as their most important holiday. So almost all of Nazareth, almost all of Capernaum would have made the journey 36 hours, spending the night, a campfire. You can imagine them singing the Psalms of Ascent, which are a section of Psalms towards the back end of what we call the Book of Psalms, singing around the campfire these songs about going up to the city of Jerusalem to worship God in His temple. So Jesus makes the journey down to Jerusalem, and when He gets into the temple, He's not happy. Verse 14, In the temple He found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So he's upset. Now, to everyone else that day, they would not have understood why he was upset because no one was doing anything out of the ordinary. Uh, They're selling these animals, but they have a very good reason for doing that. If you were a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, you had to offer a sacrifice. God had prescribed that in the Old Testament law. But imagine how inconvenient it would have been to tuck a lamb under your arm in Capernaum and travel with it for 36 plus hours down to Jerusalem. Can you imagine holding on to a dove for that long, making sure it didn't fly away? And so someone had the great idea. Why don't we make it easy on the pilgrims, these worshipers who want to come and honor God in the temple? Let's just sell them the sacrifice they need right here in the temple. It's a win win. It's a good business. And it's helpful to them. The money changers, the same thing. The temple uh, was a place that you would make a financial offering. It was expected. Uh, it, it was also prescribed in the law. But the temple only accepted one form of currency. Uh, in, in our day, a quarter is a quarter, a nickel is a nickel, a penny is a penny. But remember back then, they didn't have giant machines just stamping out these coins. They were handmade or they were made by a crude process. And so some coins were very thick with silver and some of the coins were very thin with silver. Some of them were oddly shaped. And so it meant that even though it was a coin of a certain currency, it ended up being worth different things based on its weight and its shape. Well, the temple decided we're just going to accept this one form of currency because it is the most consistent. 
So if you were going to make an offering there, as you were prescribed to do, you had to have this certain kind of currency. Well, not everybody had that. And again, how inconvenient would it have been to exchange your money back in Capernaum in the north? You might need it at some point traveling down. And so somebody said, well, let's just exchange the currency right here in the courtyard of the temple. It's not that big of a deal. It's a win-win. It's a good business model, and it helps the pilgrims out as they come to worship. But Jesus is upset. In fact, he's so upset, he makes a whip. Now, now he's not whipping people, although I bet he was tempted. Uh, He's driving out the animals. Remember, this is a crowded temple complex. Lots of animals, uh, a few entrances. And so he's shepherding these animals with this cord out of the temple. Uh, Not just to get them out of there for propriety, but because he's... Making a point, and his point is that they had turned his father's house into a shopping center. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has referred to the temple as his father's house. You remember that story when he was 12 years old. Mary and Joseph left northern Israel, made that 36-hour walk down to Jerusalem with their friends, their family, their cousins, their village. And they get to Jerusalem. They do their acts of worship. They turn around to come home. They assume that Jesus, who's 12 years old, is somewhere in the caravan. They find out that he's not after a couple of days. So they turn around, go and look for him in Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple. And he says, why are you surprised? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And now he is upset because his father's house has become a place for shopping. And his disciples, verse 17, remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quotation from Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. Here's the first thing that I want you to write down tonight. The temple of God lost its heart for God. Because the people of God had become disciples of convenience. That's a mouthful. The temple of God lost its heart for God because the people of God had become disciples of convenience. As John is presenting this story to us, he he doesn't say there's anything morally wrong with the businesses in the courtyard of the marketplace. Uh, He doesn't condemn uh, the people selling the oxen or the sheep or the doves, right? John doesn't say that uh, they're taking advantage of the people by exchanging the money. He just says that Jesus is bothered because they had lost their heart. Uh, The people of God were not using the temple of God for its intended purpose. They had lost their way. I historically fall asleep on airplanes, I think it's the hum of the engine, just the constant turning over, the the gentle noise as you're sitting there, and it just puts me to sleep. The same thing happens on a boat. You know, you're kind of in the rocking waves, and just the rhythm uh, puts you uh, asleep. I think this is the point that Jesus is trying to make. The, The rhythm of the temple, it's daily, it's consistent, but it had put the worshipers asleep. They still had all the habits, but had lost the heart. And to that I can relate. I can relate to coming to church out of habit without ever connecting my heart to what really matters. I can relate to opening up the scripture out of habit without saying, God, will you speak to me and will you change me? Our response 
often is, well, if I don't mean it, then maybe I should just quit doing it. If, if I'm not actually connecting the dots between coming to church and God, maybe I should just stop coming to church. And that is an option. Or maybe the better option is just to go back to the beginning and ask some very simple but important questions. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and resurrected from the dead? If so, do you believe that the scripture is the word of God? What God wants us to know about himself, about us, and about what he is doing in the world and our future here? If so, do you believe that Jesus' crucifixion was not just punishment at the hands of the Roman Empire, but it is the way that God has forgiven our sins, given us eternal life, and calls us sons and daughters? If you go back to the beginning and you start asking some of those fundamental questions, what you'll find is gratitude starting to well up in your heart. And when gratitude increases, suddenly my heart is now engaged And I have the powerful combination of heart and habit. But habit without the heart over a long period of time is a killer of faith. And how did they fall into this trap? They did it because somebody was providing them convenience. Which in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. But think about the things that really matter to you. I bet none of them are convenient. So those of you who want to be married or are married, uh, marriage is great. It is a true gift from God. Not convenient. Those of you who are parents or would like to be parents one day, it's better than you can even imagine. Super not convenient. (laughs) A job filled with purpose. A job that makes you glad that you work there. Still not convenient. Most of the things that you and I are aiming our life at, we will not attain through convenience. And yet we are disciples of convenience. That's why we shipped at our house. Shipped, you you with me? Uh, If you live in the loop, it's Uber Eats. There's like some weird loyalty that goes on there. But out in the suburbs where I live, uh, we use shipped. Uh, You could go to the grocery store yourself or you could pay a little bit extra for somebody to grow the grocery store for you. So if $2 is what milk costs when you go by yourself, it costs $4 when somebody else shops for you. And that makes sense why it would be more expensive. But because we're disciples of convenience, we want to pay for that. Uh, Netflix is a, uh, a form of convenience. We don't want to uh, get uh, up and spend the money to go to the movie theater and do the whole thing. We want just a bunch of movies available to us right now at home in a, in a database. Uh, joining the gym and staying committed to the gym is really about convenience because what they know about you is they make it easy for you to sign up and then they make it inconvenient to cancel your gym membership. And so we're like, well, I guess I'm going to pay for this for the next five years and not use it because we crave convenience and convenience is a great thing except for it can be an enemy of the things that really matter Uh, there are a few reasons why I think I become a disciple of convenience you can try these on they may not be uh, relevant to you but here's a list for me Um, I choose convenience because I have more masters than I can serve I mean think about all the goals that society hands to you you got work goals, you got relationship goals, you got wealth goals, you got vacation goals, 
uh, you've got uh, family goals, uh, you've got country club goals, uh, you've got recreation goals, you've got hobby goals, you've got all kinds of goals. And society presents these to, to us and says, well, you, you got to do this. These are your only option. If you want to be a normal person on the earth, you have to do these things. And yet we go to try and we realize we can't do all of these things. So when somebody offers us convenience to maybe check the box, we snatch it up. The same thing is really true about the second thing that's listed here. We are a quantity over quality culture. Again, what society hands us is a list of things that we need to accomplish in our life. I mean, summer is here. And what are we asking each other? Hey, what are you doing this summer? You travel in this summer? I mean, imagine how ashamed you would feel if somebody said, hey, what are your summer plans? And you're like, nothing. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to come home. And, and that's it. I mean, wouldn't you feel a deep sense of loss, of emptiness if you said that? Like, if you said to that person, you know, I'm only doing one thing this summer, but I'm going to really do it well. People are just like, hey, I'm just making small talk. What are you being weird for? That's how people <laughs> would respond. Because we're quantity people. Tell me about all the things you're doing. If you don't have a lot of things to share, if you don't have a lot of things to post, do you even exist in this world? We're a quantity over quality culture. And because we choose quantity, or at least that's the choice that's being made for us, if somebody offers us convenience, an easy way to check all those boxes, we snatch it up. Uh, spiritually, we choose uh, spiritual convenience because of the next thing that's listed. We've been taught church culture instead of knowing Christ. We've been taught church culture instead of knowing Christ. So we've been taught if I go to church, I should also read the Bible. Well, reading the Bible is super inconvenient. I mean, as a church, we're doing it together and we've just, we're just in Job. I mean, Job is like, whoa, Job is like 40 chapters of wow, you know. <laughs> and it's like real rich in the beginning and it kind of picks up at the end. But the middle, it's like, what's going on here? Is this, it's inconvenient. But if somebody said, well, hey, it's the same if if somebody in your feed posts a a Bible verse and you just take 10 seconds, you read that like that counts. We'll choose that every time. That's why for a lot of us, our only spiritual habit is coming to church because it is the least inconvenient and still itself. It's a little inconvenient. But I find it easier to come to church than to really read the scripture in a way that would actually change me. That's why we just pray bless you prayers. Bless my wife, bless my kids, bless my work, bless my friends, bless my mom. Because those are convenient. The prayers that say, God, there is something kind of weird and twisted in me that keeps popping up and and I don't like it and I feel the conviction of the spirit can we wrestle that out in prayer that's a hard prayer to pray but that's the only way we can know Christ truly knowing Jesus in a relational way is just everyday faithfulness over a long period of time You cannot microwave that and there is nothing convenient about it. So when you and I choose convenience, we just learn how to come to church and we forfeit knowing Christ. And I already mentioned it, but our human nature wars against transformation. 
Your, your human nature does not want to sit through Job chapter 3 through 38. Your human nature wants to scan your Instagram feed for spiritual Twinkies. Maybe not yours, mine does. How do I know if I'm choosing convenience over being a true disciple of Christ? This is a question I ask myself, and it makes me feel bad, so I want to share it with you. (laughs) How far away am I from being willing to sell everything I have and give it to the poor? That is the gut check for me. Jesus asks a few people to do that. Not everybody, so some of you can breathe a sigh of relief. But more than one. Enough people that it worries me. How far away am I from that level of obedience? Not that God would ever ask me to do that, but if he did, how long would it take him to wear me down? Would it be an immediate yes? Would it be a maybe one day Or would I just drag my heels until I died or Jesus returned? And for me, the answer to that question is the revealer of whether I am being a disciple of Christ or a disciple of spiritual and physical convenience. And this bothered Jesus. This is something that was not that bad. Buying a sheep in the temple To honor God with it. But Jesus knows the things that really matter don't come about by convenience. Verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They they said to him after he turned over the tables and he had shooed all of the animals out of the temple complex. Like, Hey, who gave you the right? What do you think that you're doing who are you what are you going to do to prove to us that you have the authority to do that and he responds in verse 19 Jesus answered destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days therefore the Jews said this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body so when he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made so he said here's the sign that I have the authority to do this if you destroy the temple in three days I will raise it back again now we know because John just told us that he's talking about his body they destroyed his body on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin and your sin so that we can be reconciled to God and then three days later he was resurrected that's what he's talking about but they think that he's talking about the physical temple and and they didn't like him bringing up the destruction of the temple that was a real sensitive topic for them I brought a little history of the temple in case any of you are nerds the temple really started not as a temple but a tabernacle in Exodus chapter 24 God has rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt he's taking them to the promised land but he gives them this amazing promise in the middle I'm going to be your God you're going to be my people I'm going to live among you but I need you to build me a tent and he gave them real specific instructions for what that tent looked like and that tent just traveled around the desert and then once they moved into the promised land it would stay in this place or that place eventually King David brings that tent into the city of Jerusalem David's son Solomon actually built the very first temple, the one that was wood and bricks and mortar, 
But then after Solomon, the temple would go in these periods where it would be used, but then it would fall into a state of disrepair. And there are a few times in the Old Testament where the temple is really just a glorified storage unit for things that the Israelites are not using. And then they'd have a king who would revive the people to follow God and they'd kind of brush off all the cobwebs of the temple. And so they have this real up and down relationship with the temple of God throughout the Old Testament until finally, because of Israel's prolonged disobedience, the Babylonians destroy that temple. They take people into exile. Eventually, Israelites are allowed to come back home. And in Ezra chapter 1, God says, I want you to rebuild the temple. And they do, only it is a shadow of its former self. But then years and generations later, Herod the Great is looking for a way to win favor with people uh, because he wasn't fully Jewish. And so the people didn't really respect him. The Roman Empire had said, hey, why don't you be the king of Israel? He didn't have any real claim on any kind of throne. And so he thought, well, if I build them their temple or at least I renovate it and make it really glorious and grand, uh, then they'll respect me. And then I think also he liked to be known as a great builder And so at the time that Jesus is in the temple in John chapter 2, the temple is one of the most glamorous buildings on planet Earth. But because the temple had been destroyed, they were real sensitive about that. In fact, two years from this moment, um, when they arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his first trial is a religious trial. They bring this up. They remembered it for two years. Hey, we remember when you said that you were going to destroy the temple. And it was one of the things that they used to justify his crucifixion in their mind. But again, John tells us he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his own body. Second thing that I want you to write down. Jesus believed he was the fulfillment of the temple. The temple had priests. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the high priest. The temple had sacrifices. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the sacrifice that only had to be made one time for all time for all people. They had teaching in the temple. Jesus was the teacher with a capital T. And the temple was the center of their faith. Remember when Uh, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. The reason they caught him is because every day he would open up his windows and he would pray towards Jerusalem and before the towards the temple uh, that stood there all the way from Babylon. He was thinking about the temple back in Jerusalem because it was the center of their faith. And what Jesus tells us over and over again in his teaching is now he is the center of faith. Remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That was one of the reasons that you would go to the temple in the first place. So because you would be near God. But Jesus says, if you want to be near God, if you want to interact with God, then interact with me. I and the father are one. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's why we pray in Jesus name, because he is the center of our faith. So if you have a friend who is far from God right now, it's okay to bring them to church, but make sure you take them to Jesus. Church is not the center of our faith. Jesus is the center of our faith. He is the priest that mediates between us and God. He is the sacrifice that we have forgiveness of sins. And he is the teacher with a capital T that can actually transform us and change us through his teaching. Verse 23. 
While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The final thing I want you to write down, Jesus rejected the shallow faith of the people. On the surface, this story seems like it has a positive ending. Jesus goes in, he throws a big fit, turns over the tables, he says, you've lost your way. And it seems like on the surface, yeah, they're like, okay, we believe in your name. But yet then it says he didn't trust them because he knew what was in them. The most disappointed I've ever been, I think, was when I went to the Great Salt Lake in Utah. If you had a great time there, hey, more power to you. That was not my experience. I grew up in southwest Missouri, so we weren't, uh, you know, taking a peek at the ocean very often. But my parents had told me on our way out west, we're going to stop by this lake. It's as big as the ocean. They got sand. We're going to build sand castles. We're going to swim in this amazing lake. Plus, there's a lot of salt in it. And we've heard that maybe it kind of helps you float. You don't even have to doggy paddle. It's going to be this whole experience. And so we drive up on the Great Salt Lake. And it is beautiful. I mean, it is huge. It does look like the ocean. And sure enough, there is sand there. I I never really played in sand at the beach. I've got architecture dreams of my sand castles in my mind. We jump out of the car. We put our swimsuits on. I don't want to wait the 10 minutes for the sunscreen screen to soak and so we head for the water sure enough there is sand only it's not really sand it's more like black sludge and then we get into the water you know of course it's the the shore so it's just ankle deep and we start walking 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 walking. I turn around my parents look like little ants and it never got above our knees that's the scary thing about this story Is it's possible that when people look at us, we look the part. We got all the habits. But Jesus looks beyond our habits at our heart. These people, they believed in his name because he did a bunch of miracles in and around the temple. But he could see right through them and he knew they're just believing in me because they're seeing these signs. But I can't trust them. And he rejects their shallow faith. Later on in his ministry, he'll go on to tell a parable about seed that goes into the ground. Shallow, rocky soil. Sure enough, a plant springs up. But when some difficulty comes, the plant withers and doesn't bear the fruit that it should. Jesus wants your faith to be deep water. And a deep watered faith is super inconvenient. It's long and it's every day. It's only developed through, well, more suffering than celebrations. But that's the faith that he receives. He sees through the shallow faith. What tables need to be overturned in your life? What does Jesus need to take a whip to and just shoo on out? 
Uh, it could be some things that make your life easier. It could be some things that really don't have any moral attachment or value to them. But they undercut an inconvenient but deep faith. Let's pray.